Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, technology. and particularly the bits in between. And welcome to this episode of 1202, the Human Factors Podcast, with me, your host, Barry Kirby. Before we get underway, just to highlight, as usual, a couple of uh, podcast updates. Um, next month, uh, in April, um, there's going to be a mixture of random stuff going on because of the Ergonomics Conference. So we hope to be doing some live streaming, some interviews, and quite frankly, some random stuff. So keep an eye out on the social feeds and see uh, see what happens. I'm hoping that we might have some live bar chat, um, if anybody's willing to talk to me over a pint, um, as well as basically get, getting people's input and people's thoughts about how that conference is going. So let's just see what happens. Also on Human Factors Cast, our sister's podcast, they had a town hall event with the leadership of the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society, the HFES. And so I thoroughly recommend that you delve into their socials to see what what the future looks like from their perspective. And also, just as a slight caveat on this, I've upgraded some of the IT infrastructure um, today, literally today. So fingers crossed I get everything sorted or this could all get a bit interesting. If there's some really random cuts in the... um, the uh, the broadcast then that's why but so far fingers crossed it's all going well so keeping our fingers crossed let's talk about today's episode one of the most frightening and devastating things that i think can happen is is a fire be that in the home or the workplace and and according to home off statistics there was over thirty-five thousand dwelling fires in the uk in 2019-2020 which led to 285 fire-related deaths 67% of those are attributed to human causes. And before we get into the whole um, thing around human causes and and human error, let's just play along with this. Um, But them human causes are sort of highlighted as things like negligence or literally playing with fire. But the most common time for fire incidents is between sort of 6pm and and 8am. And so therefore the need to alert residents of homes um, that there is a problem then the smoke alarm is coming a common feature in every home. In fact, it's a mandated feature in every home. But are they as smart as they could be? And more importantly, how many have the batteries simply taken out of them, Um, which I think we've all been guilty of at one time or another? Or are they also more used to tell everybody when, well, when when dinner's ready? Um, Because that might just be a reflection on on my own cooking. Um, but fire is not the only concern. Things like carbon monoxide poisoning is very much now a silent killer and it accrues over time. So it's one of these things that, that builds up in the bloodstream. And so the use of carbon monoxide alarms is becoming more prevalent too. So with the advent of IoT, which as for those uh, people who listen often is something that I'm really interested in and, and looking at greater exploitation of, and also how to get a better in understanding of how people react in emergency situations like this. I'm really pleased to be joined by Nick Rutter, who is the, the co-founder and chief product officer at Fire Angel. So, Nick, welcome. It's great to have you on the uh, on the podcast. It's absolutely fantastic to be on the podcast, Barry. Cool. Um, not everybody says that, so that that's a great 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 start. Um, so, before we get into um, into so the, the whole fire, fire piece itself, let's let's find out a bit more about your good self, if you don't mind. So, you're the uh, chief product officer and um, and the co-founder at Fire Angel. So, could you tell us a bit more about Fire Angel itself and and then what you do in that in that role? Okay, so Fire Angel is a designer and a manufacturer of um, domestic safety solutions, so predominantly smoke alarms, heat alarms, carbon monoxide alarms, um, aimed specifically at dwellings, 
uh, sort of domestic premises. We've been in the market for uh, just over 20 years, trading just over 20 years. During that period, we've sold over 70 million products. Wow. So there's a huge amount of our products in people's homes, um, protecting their homes. Predominantly, they have been standalone products, but more commonly now becoming interlinked systems within the home or moving forward, uh, IoT technology, where we've had a huge focus over the last 10 years around IoT technology. So you've been you've been involved in that like say you're you're the co- the co-founder of the company the um how did you get into that in the first place because that's quite a that's quite a distinguished bit of uh, career how did you how, how did you fall into that yeah it, it was an interesting journey so um i trained as an industrial designer um i ended up um in hong kong working for philips in that portable audio design studios um and i decided with my co-founder sam that we were going to start a business And we created a business model before we decided what we were going to do. And that business model was plastic electronics goods, consumer electronics, because I knew that world from working for Philips. Um, Global products, so we had volume. Um, Going into a market where we didn't feel there were any strong brands, so we could create a brand. And a product set where there was room for improvement. You need to innovate to, to create a startup business within an existing uh, commercial area. And we started off, so we decided we were going to start a company. We we were looking at lots of different domestic electronics products from TVs to kettles to stereos. And we saw a smoke alarm. Um, It had the cover open and it had no batteries in it. And we started to speak to people about smoke alarms and everybody we spoke to had a bad user experience. So Fire Angel really is a business that was created to build a brand around fire safety, but from the starting point of bad user experience. Wow, that's I really like the idea that you've um, that you you knew you wanted to do something, but you weren't quite sure what. But yet, then you were able to sit sit and sort of you found a problem, then then really ran with it. Was how did you? Was that not a, a scary proposition? So having come out, I mean, obviously you've you've had the experience of, of working with Philips and things, but then to be able to just sort of turn around and say, right, we're going to go it alone and 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 create something from scratch that's going to go work on a global level. Um, was that scary or 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 just? Or how, how did that make you feel? What, what was the inspiration? Why? Um, well, obviously, we were a lot younger then and uh, <laughs> very, very enthusiastic. Um, I think my experience working in Hong Kong had given me the, the, the confidence to be able to do that from a personal perspective. And we did work with an incubator at Coventry University. So Coventry University, this was the late 90s, had got an incubator scheme. We got some European funding. Uh, and that helped get our our initial business plan and research funded so we could go out and raise some money to actually, you know, to get our first product to market took over a million pounds worth of investment. It's an expensive space to develop products in. Yeah. So we were just fortunate in that we found this facility within this incubator unit at Coventry University. That's fascinating. And, and is it a sort of space where, obviously with the nature of being fire is it, is it deemed as a safety critical space given you know and it sounds an odd thing to say but you sort of see smoke alarms and that type of thing sort of being um you know varying prices and things like that do you have a set of legislation you know specific around that that you have to work with 
Absolutely, yes. So um, without getting into the really boring details, there is a harmonised European standard, which the UK is still part of. So if you put it on the market and you call it a smoke alarm in Europe, um, it has to meet this specific standard. Uh, And it's an area where people coming from other sectors of consumer electronics, where to put a product on the market, you have to make sure it's electrically safe and it doesn't interfere with other devices. And that's normally where it stops. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. We have to do basically a year's worth of independent certification, our factories audited. So it's a very, very regulated area. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wasn't that aware of that at all? That, that's really interesting. Uh, before we get started, and I realise I'm, I'm jumping into the into the main topic here, but the before we get into that. Um, Obviously, over the past couple of years, we've had the uh, the pandemic piece that we're just coming, hopefully, touchwood, coming out the the far side of one way or another. How have you found working during the COVID? Have you been working from home, or um, how has that worked for you? Um, I was one of the really lucky people in that um, um, myself and my other half live in a reasonable sized house in a village. We could walk the dogs from home. Um, although she works from home already, so we ended up. Um, with one of us working in the kitchen. Uh, we're fortunate in our home as an office, in fact, which is incredibly rare. Um, so we were really lucky. Uh, and I lasted until about the middle of May 2020, the first lockdown working from home. And then just said, look, this this isn't working anymore. I'm going to have to start going into the office. Yeah. yeah. Often I'd drive and be the only person in the building, but work from the building. So from that perspective, I learned that I like working with people. I like having some delineation between my home space and my workspace. Mm-hmm. That said, I didn't think the move to working using Teams and Zoom and this type of technology would be particularly successful. Um, sort of shame on me because it's worked incredibly well. Um, we now have a hybrid working policy at Fire Angel. Um, so I tend to work from home one or two days a week, and that's really convenient, and I wouldn't want to go back to the old way of working. So, you know, uh, I suppose as a, both a, design, a designer and an entrepreneur, you tend to be glass half full. And for all the horror of the pandemic, uh, I think there's a huge amount of positives in that it's shaken up the way that we live and the way that we work, uh, and there will be positives for all of us in the future as, as a result of that. Yeah, it certainly is interesting, isn't it? The I think lots of different different companies are taking hugely different approaches to it. Um, in terms of yes, it's great, or they just want to get back to back to the way it was. Um, yeah. And I'm very much, I very much think that the um, you know, it's, yeah, it's very much a Pandora's box now because I think that all the old adage of um, you know people won't work effectively at home or the work you know they'll be just sat around and drinking coffee and not actually being productive. I think that's been slain as as it were. People are productive. I've, but then it's it's people having that ability to sort of turn around and say, well, actually, I work better in this way. Um, can we, you know, accommodate? I think that hybrid working is going to be very much a way forward. I think it's a very easy decision for companies because the recruitment market in the UK, at least, but I know globally, is the most challenging it's been in over 20 years I've been in business. Mm. If you're not offering hybrid working, you're not going to get good staff. So if you want a good business... You've got to offer it. It's as simple as that. Yeah, no, that, that that's a very fair comment. I think it's the um, workers have now got the 
they, they've had that taste of knowing what they can do. And there's a really good um, graphic going around, I think, on LinkedIn at the moment about the, you know, what used to be the nine to five is now the, the when am I most productive and, and that type of thing. So, no, that's really interesting. So we're, we're going to get into the main topic in a second, um, but in in have yourself a, um, a bit of a, gla- a glass of water or something while we take this quick break. <laughs> You are listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. And welcome back. And I'm here talking with Nick Rutter about fire, and in particular the use of technology to um, help basically help save people's lives. Um, so, Nick, let's start from the from the beginning. What do the you, you mainly focused in domestic dwellings and things like that? So, what are the most common causes of house fire? Um, the most common actual uh, cause is around cooking. Shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. It's the room in the house where we get things very hot or set far, set far to them intentionally. <laughs> yes. So, you know, it's no no surprise whatsoever. Um, so that is by far the highest. Um, smoking, considering the huge reduction uh, in smoking, you know, that we've seen over the last 30 years, smoking is still a really a disproportionate factor. And then there are areas um, around electrical uh, product faults, things like that, uh, down the list. But um, cooking still is over 40% from a cause. Uh, And we see this internationally. It normally drops out about 50% of fires um, actually start in the kitchen. However, it's less severe from a fatality perspective. Only accounts in the UK for sort of around 10% of fatalities because a lot of fires tend to happen uh, at night that go on to become fatal fires. And so if the, if the most fatal um, ones are happening at night, presumably that's because people are asleep and, yeah. and you're having to get them out. How do people normally react in that sort of situation? What's, what's, their sort of, their, what's the behaviour that we can expect from them? And I think this is, this is a really interesting area because... Um, when you look at our products as a product set, fortunately, fires are, are relatively rare. Mm. So 99.9% of our end users' interaction with our products is installing them, decommissioning them at the end of their life, or dealing with them if there's a fault with the device, or more commonly, there's a situation like cooking, you know, uh, where you've set the smoke alarm off, which most users see as a nuisance, because they know they've not got a fire and they don't want the smoke alarm to be making a load of noise. Yeah, actually, the smoke alarm's doing exactly what it's intended to do, to save the smoke within the property. What actually happens in those situations where there is a fire is really not very well understood. Um, and it's an area of huge interest to us. And when, you know, when I will, we'll talk about IoT, there's fantastic opportunities around the use of IoT um, in understanding that, yeah. um, what we what we do know is often people's memories of what is happening is very poor. So a good example, uh, we had a situation which was slightly worrying, where there was a report of a serious fire and that our alarms didn't work. Right. Uh, it obviously went through a full investigation. 
And when the fire investigator listened to the 999 call, you could hear our smoke alarms on the call in the background going off. Yeah. However, the person who made the 999 call was absolutely adamant that the smoke alarms didn't go off. It's a stressful situation. And, you know, you will know that people's memory in stressful situations can become incredibly poor. If you then take a situation where somebody's asleep, they're woken up, they're disorientated, then the house is full of smoke, there are so many unknowns there. And if you use a parallel to, you know, the cutting edge of safety in an area where there's been a huge amount of research uh, from a human factors perspective, like aviation, you've got a black box. And the black box has been the unlocking mechanism to allowing those safety improvements to happen. Mm-hmm. We haven't, as an industry, had that black box uh, until we launched the product in 2010, which was very innovative in quite a simple way. It had, effectively, a memory of previous events right. that we designed purely to help our technical support team if somebody phoned up with a fault. However, we then started to realize as we got a few million of those products into the marketplace, and as some were in fires and we got them back through fire investigations, we suddenly realized we'd inadvertently created that black box around domestic fire. Right. So using that black box then, is that being able to basically shape what you do and shape, shape how you deliver your product? Yeah, so it was around the time that we were starting to work on our Internet of Things solution, uh, so around 2013, 2014. So we're, we're specifying we're developing this IoT solution around fire safety. And one of our engineers who, who was doing a fire investigation for us. So we've had a policy for 15 years that if one of our alarms is involved in a serious event, we will provide a free forensic report right. on that alarm. We see it as, you know, part of our... Part of our, our responsibility more than a service as a brand and um, an engineer who'd done a number of these reports but with this new product that had got this memory in it said to me I'm seeing a really interesting trend in these alarms coming back in fires and I was reading a lot around the time about big data and the power of big data and suddenly it just sort of switched and it's like wow that's really interesting let's understand that and that's led on to create a product that we call Predict. It's completely unique to Fire Angel. Um, and we've actually got international patents on it. That's, you know, we've proven it's unique. And that using an IoT system can potentially prevent fires even happening in the first place and all by spotting patterns of human behavior. That's really interesting. So we talk about the different products and you, you're throwing around uh, a few different names. Can you just give us a quick rundown then of the different um, technologies that you've, that's part of your catalogue against um, in, in this space? So um, from a sensing perspective, if it's fire, um, there are a number of different sensing technologies available. Uh, I'm not going to go into sort of the detail yeah. of them because we'll be here all day. <laughs> but when I got into the industry, there was a technology called ionization. And if you've still got a smoke alarm that goes off every time you burn the toast, you've got an old ionization alarm and go out and replace it with a new one because 
it will it will stop that happening. Yeah. We now use a more sophisticated multi-sensor technology across all our mid and premium products. So that's looking at smoke in the property, but it's also looking at spikes in ambient temperature. So right. it's an intelligent technology. Uh, we've got similar uh, intelligent technology we call Thermistech uh, for use in kitchens, which looks at potentially a cooking fire. But then on the back of that, so that's the core fire sensing technology. Yeah. On the back of that, we've got a number of different solutions from mains powered products, battery powered products. Um, interconnected within the property now is nearly all done wirelessly. Um, it's now a requirement from this month, um, it's law in Scotland, that all properties have got to have interconnected smoke alarms and a heat alarm in the kitchen. So Scotland's really gone out there yeah, and gone yeah. to an incredibly high level of compliance. But once you've got wirelessly interconnected products within the property, you can then put a gateway in and turn it into an IoT solution. And that then opens up the potential of using technologies like Fire Angel Predict, which can pinpoint that high-risk behaviour. So what sort of... Um... Yeah, that, that segues us really nicely into that piece around the value of IoT here. So what sort of behaviours are you able to predict? What, what sort of thing, you know, what, what are indicators that you're playing with? Well, what, what we realised is that having got quite a number of alarms back where we could pull out historical data from the alarm um, that had been in serious fires is, you know, there are broadly two types of domestic fire. There are completely accidental fires like an electrical fault, which sets um, fire to a property. And then there's the human side of it, the uh, lifestyle-related fires. And the people who are having lifestyle-related fires normally don't just have a one-off event. It's actually quite difficult to start a fire. Um, And if you, for example, you've got a wood burner or an open fire at home, Everybody who's who's listening to this and who's who's lived with a fire at home will have tried to light a fire and it's gone out. <laughs> yeah. So you try and create this perfect triangle of fire, yeah, and you're not successful. So actually, starting a fire at home can be quite difficult. And what we realise is that some people were it sounds a dreadful thing to say, but you know they 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 were trying so hard that they got successful. Right. That people who were having serious fires there was a pattern of, of smaller events going back days or weeks or months before the fire. So that was our starting point, understanding, well, what are the root causes of those? Um, so we know, you know, alcohol is a big factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as are, you know, drug abuse or, or, you know, illegal drug use is another factor. Um any mental health issues, uh, you know, we're seeing fire deaths in the UK starting to plateau, and a big factor of that is aging population um, and issues around basically mental condition and issues like Alzheimer's. Right. Leaving leaving cooking on or burning cooking, and considering that's the root cause of fifty percent of fires, it's not a surprise that that's a big factor. Yeah. Um, but our predict technology is more sophisticated than saying, oh, there might be a cooking fire and that's an issue because we look at the response of um, the residents. So 
if somebody happens to not be a great cook and maybe have a badly sighted smoke alarm, they may set that smoke alarm off cooking quite frequently. But if they then go and press a reset button on it in a reasonably timely fashion, we know that that's relatively low risk behavior. Yeah, yeah. The flip side is, is somebody they may be the pub. Uh, we all do that. They've had a few too many, and I've definitely been there. <laughs> but come home, decide, I think I'm going to make chips, fall asleep. You know, it's the kind of the stereotypical example that the industry refers to. Someone coming home from, from the pub, decided to, to start cooking, falling asleep in front of the TV, and the smoke alarms are going off, they're not reacting and they've got a really, or they're not reacting quickly enough, there's a really serious situation. So these are the type of factors, and we've got actually another product that's in development at the moment, which will allow us to get um, a much tighter understanding of what are the cause of those predict events that we're measuring with predict. So you're able to get, are you able to get that information back in a way that you can then, um, I guess, how yeah basically how do you use that information in a proactive way how are you getting that back and and feeding that back into you know the the, the next product cycle or the, the product lifestyle well from a just from a a um safety perspective so the way the predict system works it looks at every device um on the fire angel um platform right so we're, we're you know approximately hundred thousand devices all connected um, it's looking for this pattern of high-risk behavior. If it sees that pattern, it, it then um, creates a predict notification. And based on how you've set the platform up, uh, a good example would be if you're a housing association, um, we can get you in contact with your local fire and rescue service, community fire safety department, uh, and they may accept predict triggers. So if somebody's showing this high-risk behavior, they can go around and do a safe and well visit, get in the property, try and understand what's happening and understand why this person is exhibiting this high-risk behavior. So while we're going through that learning process of what are the root causes, um, the key is using that information to create an intervention, getting somebody into the property who is a fire safety professional who can understand Okay, so we've got a smoker, there's evidence that probably we've got somebody who's excessively using alcohol. Hoarding is a really interesting factor. Uh, to quote a, a chief, a UK chief fire officer who spent most of his career in um, fire investigation, he said, I'm not, I'm not trying to position anything by this statement, but I've never seen a fatal fire in a tidy house. In right, yeah. over 20 years, yes. you know, but for all kinds of reasons. So then you look at hoarding. Well, why is hoarding a risk? Well, you've got more fuel in the property. So that's a risk. But actually, the fact that somebody's hoarding in the first place is an indication there could be mental health issues, which are a secondary risk. Mm -hmm. So you do tend to see in fire this almost exponential increase in certain groups' risk. And often high-risk people are more tend to be in multiple groups rather than just a single high-risk group. Yeah, no, that's really, um, really powerful, isn't it? Because certainly we, with my interaction with uh, fire service in the past, one of the biggest things budgetary they were looking for was the ability to go and educate 
um, to go and educate residents about the fire risks in their home, and they w- they wanted more and more budget to be able to go and do fire safety checks over and above, um, you know, the newest spangly piece of kit for the um, on on the fire engine, and it was because of exactly that. And the but the ability to go and target that into to people who you can from your sort of technology to be able to you know identify that that's got to be um hugely powerful not only for um you know for for yourself and and driving that technology forward but you know for every single fire service it allows us allows them to target their resources really really effectively yeah and i think when you look particularly at the the housing industry so you know there's four million um social housing properties in the uk uh, and some of those housing associations have got to, well, a lot of got tens of thousands of properties. The big ones are, uh, you know, close to 100,000 properties, yeah. which gives them a big challenge from a responsibility and safety perspective. So to have a product that effectively gives you an automated real-time stratification of risk of, of where your high-risk sits within those properties and allows you to use your budget in a more focused way in order to focus on the risk and to be able to monitor the risk as well because risk isn't a consistent thing and another uh, another area that if you speak to people uh, like fire and rescue services relationships are a really interesting factor in fire risk so often you may have a relatively low risk property and then there's a change in relationship um, somebody new moves into the properties of a totally different risk Right, and, and that's quite a you know that's an identified risk that, that the fire rescue services understand. So another element that we look at as part of predict is a sudden change in behaviour because that's an indication that something's moved. So moving forward, then I mean obviously we I'm really interested in this in the human factors of the behaviour and how we use them IoT technologies to do that. Um, what if we could pick one or maybe one or two? Um, Either bits of technology or whatever. What, what can we? What can the development of your technology help people do the most in order to keep them safe? Um, I think first of all, recognizing that the behaviour is an issue. Um, as you say, education is a big factor. A lot of people have, um, you know, we've got safe as a society. So you look at fire deaths um, over the last twenty years in the UK and they're down around 50%. So, you know, the fire and rescue services in the UK on an international standing are incredibly progressive. Mm. You know, a lot of other countries' fire and rescue services are we want longer ladders, we want faster fire engines. And I don't know what it is about the National Fire Chiefs Council and UK fire and rescue services. They just woke up 20 years ago to the power of prevention um, and the power of being proactive. So we're really fortunate in the UK in that in that we we have that. So by being able to understand where the risk happening, there's lots of solutions that we can introduce. So for somebody who's maybe hard of hearing and they didn't know the alarms were going off, you know, a lot of people are hard of hearing and are a bit in denial about it. We can have a deaf alert. There are lots of solutions around cooking safety that can be introduced. But unfortunately, in some circumstances, it's not just around technology. 
there may be people who just aren't safe to be living alone yeah. anymore and they're possibly living in a, in a housing block with lots of other people within that property. So, so there's the intervention side of it is very, very key. But specifically on the technology side, uh, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, you know, we've, we've shipped over 70 million products. But nearly all of those products we've shipped and we've waved goodbye to them as they've left the warehouse and we, we don't get them back. So all of a sudden to have this window into the behaviors of our products in the field is the biggest single innovation opportunity the industry's had. So I'm assuming then that um, with all this new insight data and things like that, that universities and them sort of organizations must be chomping at the bit and battering your door down to get hold of that data to be able to get them sort of insights. Is that the case or, or not? Um, it, not at the moment. No, it's not the case. It's something I'd be very, very keen. You know, if any of the listeners are interested um, in doing research around this, um, it is it is something we'd be really interested in participating in because we still understand so little. There's so much that can be done. You know, it's not a new problem. Domestic fire. It's a very, very old problem. And then you use, again, because it's a good parallel, the parallel of aviation safety. Aviation is quite new as an industry Mm. relative relative to what we deal with. And yet they've understood the problems and dealt with them because of the magnitude of things going wrong. They've dealt with them in a relatively short space of time. And they've had the technology to do it. You know, the level of technology that they've had is, uh, has historically been out of reach for our industry but because of particularly IoT, suddenly we're getting that technology within our reach. So we are only now getting the, the kind of the dawning of the ability to harvest this information. So, yeah, it's not often we get a, that sort of um, exclusive. So if there's anybody listening who's wanting to uh, um, get into that data and, and basically look at that human behavior aspect in a window that we haven't seen before, it's, uh, that, that sounds like an open invitation. So I, I suggest that somebody jumps on it. Um no, that, that's been really, really fascinating. And I think um, the ability to come back and perhaps talk about this again um, in the future to see how it's going, I think, would be very much high on my agenda. So um, that's really, really cool. Before we um, say goodbye, obviously, we, we now do this, these final three questions, uh, which is to find a bit more about um, about yourself and, and, and sort of what drives things a bit. So um, we call it, we've got a really posh name for it. We call it the final three. So... In the so the first one really is around you know what do you read so what's your what's a book or a, a paper or something that you keep on going back to time and time again? I have to say I can't I can't think of of anything specific. I could lie and say it's my copy of Body Space from university <laughs> in nineteen ninety two that I dig out because I'm so into the ergonomics that I did. It's not. Um, well, that's, I'm, I'm disappointed. Uh, I, don't. <laughs> I, uh, I think the, you know, the, there's so much information available on the internet now. I always use the internet as a first, um, as a, you know, a first port of call looking at information. The other one, and again, it's quite boring, but because of the nature of our industry, there's a number of different standards. So, BS 5839 Part 6, which has got a lovely name. Uh, that's the guidelines for domestic fire safety systems in the UK. Right. So whenever we're looking at doing something different or innovative 
or introducing a new technology, that's sort of our starting point about how the technology can be applied. So um, I'm sure everybody's now running out for, for that for that standard. Um, the uh, so if you could go back in time a bit, what would sort of ad- what advice would you give to to younger Nick? Sort of depends how long you've got because that's <laughs> a long old podcast. I think to sort of to boil it down into into a little soundbite. Um, firstly, to trust your gut feel, and then to stick to your guns afterwards. I think you know I. I started this business when I was 26 and by my own admission didn't know anything about anything but actually we got a vision about what we were doing mm. and as as you go through your career lots of people will tell you that this is the way that we do things and the way we should do things and actually I think if you've got a view on what you're doing if you if you have a vision and you enforce that vision and you stick to that vision at all of the cost. Yeah. That's that's the best thing that you can do. I couldn't agree more. Just um, yeah, go with your gut feel. Fundamentally, I, I like I like that a lot. Um, who would you suggest we interview next? Who would you like to listen to being interviewed on um, or being grilled the on the podcast? I'd like to listen to being interviewed is uh, Matthew Said, who wrote a book called Black Box Thinking. Okay. Um, I studied ergonomics at university, so I knew a little bit. I don't think one module, so I understood a little bit about ergonomics being a product designer. Um, However, Black Box Thinking is a book all about how organizations deal with failure. And it it was a real eye-opener to me. And I think what it opened up is the psychological side of human factors as opposed to the physical side and actually how complex we all think we are rational we talk about being rational and actually the way that we behave as a society is often irrational more than it is rational and i think understanding how we behave is a really key starting point so so i'd really recommend uh, either reading that book if you've not read the book because it's a fantastic book but yeah, Matthew Saeed, um, I think will be really interesting. Cool. No, oh, we'll uh, we shall chase that one down. So, Nick, thank you very much for your time um, for talking us through um, financial technologies and and really giving us that insight about how you're taking IoT and and giving us an insight that we've never had before. And I just reiterate, if anybody is interested into the in that sort of research, then um, jump on the opportunity because I think it sounds like there is um, an opportunity here to to solve a really old but a really um, really prevalent problem. Your um, audio details are going to be available in the show notes. Uh, but if anybody wants to find out more about Fire Angel technology, what's the best way of doing that? Just go to our website. So it's fireangel.co.uk. Uh, it's got lots of information about the different uh, products and solutions we provide. That's fantastic. And I'll make sure that link is in the um, in the notes as well. So just before we disappear, just a reminder that the Ergonomics Conference is on um, on next month. Um, it is split into two sessions if you weren't aware, so there's going to be a virtual session on the 11th and 12th of April where we're covering all to- topics on sustainability, automation, defence um, and things like that. And, and on the night evening of the 11th will be the CIHF AGM as well. Um, and then there's going to be a physical side to it on the 25th and 26th of April, which in Birmingham, where we're going to be looking at aviation, well-being, healthcare, tools, and, and non-technical skills, um, amongst a bunch of other stuff. And more importantly, there'll be a bar. Um, I'm going to be presenting in the sustainability session in the, in, the, in the first virtual session. 
Um, and we're going to have an en- entire uh, piece on that, which I'm really quite excited by. And then we're also taking the podcast on tour to the physical event, as I mentioned in the, uh, the at the top of the podcast. So we hope to have lots of people's thoughts and feedback on all of the sessions. So all it remains for me to say is to say thank you for engaging with us today, and we shall see you on the next episode. <laughs> Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us on social media such as Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at 1202 Podcast. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.